Hello and welcome to New York Film Academy community. I'm so excited. Today we have Denise Myers in the studio, alumnus of NIFA, uh, filmmaker, extraordinaire, writer, uh, incredible, all-around hilarious person. I can't wait for you to meet her. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hey guys, it's Joelle Smith. Uh, I'm in the studio solo, which is such a strange sensation. Uh, but today we have a very special guest for you guys. Uh, Denise Myers is a New York Film Academy alumnus and the only writer in the six-year history of the Athena Film Festival to have two screenplays make it to the finals. Lucky 13 is an Athena finalist. It's about the first American woman to fly military aircraft in wartime. Lucky 13 is one of three winners of the 2017 Athena Film Festival screenplay competition. Uh, her other film, Ride the Wind, is about Bessie Stringfield's story. It's about one, the only African-American woman to serve as a motorcycle dispatch rider in World War II. Uh, Robin Wright directed her latest film, The Dark of Night, which starred Sam Rockwell and appeared at the Cannes Film Festival. Just incredible, incredible uh, career, and she's here to tell us all about her story. Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, God, Joelle. Thank you so much for having me. It's so cool to get to talk about this because you guys were really instrumental in helping me get where I'm at today. I, I physically in North Carolina, but that's not what I mean. I actually have a career now, I think, kind of because of you guys. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, I feel like on this show, I'm always talking about how you don't need to be in Hollywood to be a filmmaker. Um, and I never have a lot of guests who they can talk about their friends who've made films or they can talk about experiences they've had with filmmakers outside of Hollywood, but they all live here. So it's super exciting to have somebody who's actually out there doing it, making movies and not uh, working within the system. You know, I, I actually just got back from a, a workshop in, uh, at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York last week. It was, uh, it was sponsored by the New York Film and Television, I'm sorry, excuse me, New York Stage and Filmmakers Workshop. And everybody was from New York or Los Angeles, except for me. And everyone kept saying to me, you need to be in New York, you need to be in Los Angeles. Yeah. I actually started my career in Los Angeles, and I feel like I've done better or more quality networking out here, like when I meet people, it really has more of that relationship impact than being at a bar or a, a, a screenwriter's event or a networking event in Los Angeles where everybody's trying to get someplace. I kind of stand out from everyone else because of where I live and, and because of the relationships that I'm, I'm developing along the way. So I actually find it to be a huge advantage. I feel like a lot of times when people ask what you do in L.A., it's... Um very surfacey like oh well of course you're in the entertainment industry whereas if you say i'm from small town illinois and when i say that well what are you working on and tell us all about it and i have story ideas to pitch to you and i think it kind of <laughs> resonates more there there's more of a genuine genuine curiosity about the work that you're producing well i think that's part of it but i also know that when i win an an, an event uh you know going to uh, the athena film festival or for example even going to this event last week i met the the former head of the Sundance Film Festival, and he's now the current head of the Tribeca Film Festival, I would not have run across him anywhere else that I could think of. I've, I've run into actors and producers and directors in the oddest places, and because the conversation starts on a different level, sometimes it's about your, the fact that you're at the festival or where are you coming in from, or everyone loves the fact that I live in Asheville. It's such a great place to be and everyone wants to be here that you get to start the conversation on a different level. You don't start it with, 
hi, I'm a screenwriter or an actor or a director or whatever, because everyone in Los Angeles is and everyone mm. in New York is. But when you're able to actually start the conversation about books are great places to go in Asheville, it just it sort of sets the bar to different levels. So it's actually been really cool to to have that in my back pocket. And I actually started in the film business with everyone who runs it now. I started with Brian Lord and Mike DeLuca and Guy Rydell and Mark Ordesky and Steve Rabineau. I know all those guys, but um, it didn't really matter because I can't do anything for them right now. But it just sort of makes it, it's kind of cool to, to step back from this and still be going at Hollywood from a fresh perspective, especially at my age. So, Absolutely. Uh, we also frequently talk about hearing stories from different perspectives. We usually start with one question. We kind of just dived right into our conversation, uh, which I <laughs> love. Me. I uh, do that. <laughs> um, what I always kind of want to know from filmmakers uh, in particular is when did you first fall in love with movies? Oh God, I fell in, lo in love with movies as a kid. Um, in fact, I, I probably have a better working knowledge of film from the thirties and forties and fifties than I, than I do now. Uh, it, you know, so it seems so trite to say, you know, all the great Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, but I mean, I loved Ray Harryhausen movies. It just, anything took me away. And so it's really been interesting because, and I'm going to actually go ahead and give you guys an endorsement, even though you didn't ask for this, but this is like really fresh as I thought, because I'd watched so many movies as a kid growing mm -hmm. up um, that I was so invested in them. And I loved to go that I understood what screenwriting was about. And, and I had a career or sort of when I first moved to Los Angeles, but it wasn't until I came back a couple of years ago and did the screenwriting class with NIFA that I really started to understand there is a process mm. and there is a formula and, and you have to adhere to the formula, but stay away from it. And so it's just, it's sort of been a really interesting journey to start from God, I'd love to be part of that to now I kind of sort of am. So if you had to write that formula out, what would it look like? Like if it's like a mathematical formula, how would you write it out? Uh, in terms of, of my own story or just math in general? Because honestly, I suck at math. so you don't want to <laughs> I mean, like the screenwriting formula. Is it like time anyway, plus well, rewriting? No, here's the thing about it. And I actually learned this, uh, you know, I'm, st I'm still continuing to learn. I mean, I think that's the thing about, about writing is you think you know, and then you write and you think it's perfect. And then somebody says they like it, but... You know, we we did this uh, workshop this last week. It was, um, they had 500 screenplays, and I'm going to kind of answer that in a roundabout way. 500 screenplays, invitation only. They chose nine people. They chose mm. four TV writers and five screenwriters. And I'm typically a, a screenwriter. In fact, the screenplay that I worked on um, when I was at NIFA just got optioned today. So Congratulations. Uh, excuse me? I said Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's pretty cool. I can't say much more about it than that at this point because it's still it's like we haven't signed anything, but it's it's sort of in process. But um, but the thing about it is, is that, you know, sort of sitting around that room and you think you've learned so much and you think you've hit all your points and you hit all your marks and you've done your character arc and your conflict within the scene, within the arc, within the act. And, <laughs> and then you get there and realize that you, you kind of missed on a lot of different levels, but you're but you but you're skilled enough now to know how to get there. So for me, screenwriting is weird because you're supposed to follow a formula. There are specific notes you're supposed to hit, but you're also supposed to avoid those notes whenever you can. You're supposed to bring something fresh or different to it. You're supposed to surprise people, mm. but you're not supposed to surprise them too much. And so it's, it is definitely a, a, it's a, it's a balancing act, but you only learn it through writing and writing and writing and writing and writing some more. So 
when do you start telling stories? You, you fall in love with movies as a kid. When do you start moving to try to tell your own stories? Well, originally I started right after college. Um, I left, uh, I left, I went to Oregon State University and I came to California the first time, sort of like the bad penny. I keep coming back. <laughs> uh, I went to California after college. I actually met um, a woman who worked for Michael Douglas and uh, she said, come out to California, I'll get you a job. I went to work at the William Morris Agency. In fact, I started the same day that Brian Lord did. Wow. Um, and nobody can believe this. I was just telling this story to somebody yesterday who worked, who works at, uh, who used to work at Creative Artists. I knew Brian Lord when he looked like Veronica Lake. He had this beautiful <laughs> sweep of blonde hair across one eye now. I know he doesn't have that hair anymore. But um, I actually thought Hollywood would chew him up and spit him out. He was very sweet and very soft. And clearly mm. I was really wrong about that. I am no judge of character, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, it was just, uh, it was, it, I, I worked a lot and I was okay as a writer. I, I, I just, but I just, it was sort of interesting. Once I got into it, I, I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing. And I think even worse is I was committed to writing screenplays about women and, if it was if it was bad up until recently, it was ten times worse then. So I went nowhere in a hurry, and I actually left after twelve years. I just thought I can't do this anymore. But it's I call it the dream that wouldn't die. I keep coming back to it, and I I think this time it's going to stick. So I, I want to expound upon that a little bit. So you're saying because you were writing stories about women, your scripts weren't getting optioned or picked up, or people just yep. were flat out like we don't want to hear stories. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of funny because now, you know, I'm it. This is an interesting question for me because uh, I was interviewed not long ago by Scott Myers, who does go into the story for the blacklist. And he said, why do you write about women? Hmm. And I'm like, well, um, duh, I am and one. <laughs> and secondly, my whole theory all along has been if women knew about all of the things that women before them had done. We wouldn't start from the beginning every generation mm. to reestablish that women can be firefighters or pilots or engineers or artists or mathematicians or astronauts or all of the things that we realize now that they can be. And because of films like Hidden Figures and Wonder Woman, now all of a sudden women are hot again. They were hot in the 30s and 40s, mm. but now we're hot again. You know, like, oh, wow, we actually do have money and we can spend it at a theater. But in the in the when I was starting out, all I heard was... No one is ever going to make your movies. They're period pieces or they are about women or they're ensemble pieces about women. You need to write anything else but this. And honestly, even up until probably about a year ago, I was still hearing the same story. So it's kind of hard for me to write sometimes now because I carry a lot of baggage with me. You can't do this with a character. She can't be tough. She can't be mm. unlikable. She can't be um, fierce. She can't be all of the things that she can't be because we've heard for so long that, that women can't do that. And now there's this new generation of young women. And I got, I love you with all my heart and soul because you're like, screw that, make her, <laughs> tough, make her a badass, let her go for it. Cause that's what we want to see. And that's kind of really where my heart is. That's kind of the thing about the, the movie that we have, I'm working on a TV pilot for it mm. right now because when we were working on the film, and I, I'm guessing you'll ask questions about that later, so I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but I just, I wanted her to be just this badass, not likable, but relatable, like the kind of woman that 
you know, if a, if a guy whistles at you, what you really want to do is punch him. She just does. <laughs> yes. I love this. I don't know if you've ever, there's a graphic novel called I Kill Giants, uh, which came out, oh, I want to say like 07 territory. Um, and it was a book that got a lot of recognition for its beautiful art, but there was a lot of critique of it. Like the main character wasn't likable. Like you don't like her. Or we, if you can take that same argument to um, Twitter right now, where there's kind of this war about Isanza Stark, likable or trustworthy and it's like well she's playing the game of thrones and she's <laughs> learned from the masters like she yeah maybe is prepared to do some dark things but you know yeah. look at the world that she lives in like that's that's human um and i think it's kind of incredible how much people are like there's no way people want to see their own stories which is kind of the most ridiculous statement i think anyone could make you know that was part of what I heard uh, about a year ago. I went to, or I guess not, not even a year ago. God, it seems like it was forever. Earlier this year, I, I had a mentorship meeting, and uh, the person involved in it said that the the prevailing wisdom in Hollywood is that men don't want to see women doing a woman's job, and or excuse me, men don't want to see women doing a man's job, and women don't want to see uh, a woman doing a man's job. And I'm like, in what, in what universe is that real? Like all this, all this controversy over, you know, Doctor Who is, is going to be a, a woman this time. Like, God, grow up and get a life. Like women have been right there beside men watching since the start exactly. of that show. Absolutely. I'm curious, is, do you, I don't, I want to say regret, but do you ever think about what might be different if you had decided to try to write sto different types of stories? I, I do. I, I do. And I have. Um, I, I have a friend who uh, came to Hollywood about the same time I did. And uh, he wrote the, what you were supposed to write. And and he has a writing career. Uh, he's had a writing career. He's doing really well. And sometimes I think, you know, if I had played the game, mm -hmm. I would have been there right alongside him. But I'm also old enough now to recognize that you know, everyone has their own journey. I became a very successful artist for a very long time after, uh, after I left the film business. And now I've kind of circled back around. I still pay the bills by having a business with my husband. We have an RV repair business and I started writing a web series about our experiences, oh. trying to get out, get out from underneath that, like how to actually have a real live life. Uh, as a as a writer and uh, and that got option today too. Everyone wow. who's read it is crazy about it, and it's probably the thing that's going to really hit, because it's this great story about how many people in Hollywood are. You know, you always hear the classic story about you know she's a waitress until she makes her big break. I went to the Cannes Film Festival and I was absolutely terrified that I was going to come back to my job as an RV technician and fix toilets, and that's exactly what happened. I came back from being on a red carpet with Robin Wright and Ken, uh, wearing my tie-dye T-shirt and my and my uh, latex gloves, fixing toilets because that's how I pay my bills. Still, I don't have a I, I, a lot that happened today, but you know, it's just it's not an easy business, and and people are always kind of fascinated, and yet they do the same thing. I came back from this retreat, and everybody went back to their jobs. Somebody works at an Apple store, and somebody works at Viacom. You know, it's just what we do to, to kind of tide ourselves over till we get to the place where we want to be with this. Absolutely. We had uh, Sherry Lansing in the school the other day. Uh, former awesome. head of, yeah, She's amazing. Uh, if you guys don't know who wow. she is, she uh, was the head of 21st Century Fox for a bit. And she worked for Paramount, produced great shows. Uh, uh, she was talking about this um, kind of feeling of never 
settling. She she was making hit movie after hit movie, and it came to Tomb Raider was the story that she told, where you know there was all this controversy. No one on set liked each other. And when they finally saw the movie, it was it hadn't come together the way she had originally thought. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody was freaking out except for the guy in marketing who's like, oh, no, we tested it. It's going to sell fine. No one needs to worry. <laughs> and she was like, but then why am I here? What am I yeah. doing if I'm, I'm not telling good stories? And I, I think that um, Sherry Lansing, just to make sure we're fully quoting her, did say that they wanted to fix the movie and she liked it in the end. And she was happy with the choices they made. But that that moment was the moment that she felt she wasn't as close to movies as she had been or, or the, right. the spark for her was gone. Um, and I think that that's the thing a lot of people struggle with is if you want to make the kinds of movies you want to make, and if that doesn't follow the status quo, you might be holding down through your four jobs to support your art in order to do it. And you can see that across multiple platforms, see comic book people all the time. Yeah. You know, and I actually, in the, in one of the panel discussions that we had this last week, uh, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick were there along with, the producer of um, Little Miss Sunshine and Manchester by the Sea. Wow. And they all told stories about how they had a hit movie and they couldn't get the next one made. They Mm. would fight and scrape and they'd come up with a tiny budget and they'd get it done and everybody would love it and it would make a lot of money and they'd fight and scrape for the next one. Mm. In fact, Kevin, um, Kevin Bacon was talking about how when they made The Woodsman and it screened at Cannes, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, not Cannes, but uh, Sundance, everyone loved it. And initially they did sell it and they did well with it. But he said initially they were, there was no phone calls and they felt terrible. And I'm thinking, God, if Kevin Bacon and, you know, and Kira Sedgwick aren't managing or the producer of Manchester by the Sea is now scraping to try to get something going. And I, I don't that didn't come out right. But just the fact that he's always having to work. Yeah, and, and do the same thing that I do every day. It just really lent a lot of perspective to just how difficult all of this is. So, and actually, that's so cool about Sherry because I was a young woman when she was named head of the studio, and yeah. I'm like, "Go, girl, you go. That's awesome." It was great to see. We we had a lot of uh, teachers and 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 students who were alive during her rise, and we're just like, I can't even <laughs> thank you so much for yeah. for putting that image out there of just being able yeah. to do it. And she has the tag of. Uh, being the nicest executive in Hollywood, uh, which I think maybe goes to your point earlier of uh, your friend who who was able to come out, even though he had a kind of a gentle soul. I think that's another thing in Hollywood we're often told is like, you have to be mean and, and vicious and ruthless in order to succeed, where I found most people who succeed have to be incredibly friendly and flexible because making well, movies is hard. Exactly. You know, honestly, to tell you the truth, um, Brian is also, I think, the one of the few executives I sent him. Uh, I've been sending him emails just on occasion, like, hey, how you doing? Or this is what's going on. And he always writes back. And I figure if the if the top one of the top people in Hollywood has got five seconds to say thank you for writing or it's good to hear from you or next time you're in town. You know, that's who I want to be. I don't want to be the person that just never responds and never says anything. And it says a lot about his character and why he is who he is, because he could totally shine me on and, and he and he didn't. And and I would be devoted to him for the rest of my days just because of that one thing alone. Absolutely. Uh, your reputation speaks volumes and it moves faster than you can. Uh, and protect <laughs> it with everything. Uh, I know. It, it does sometimes get there way before you do. And you're like, wait a minute. How do you know all this stuff about me? <laughs> it can be rather frightening sometimes. <laughs> it is. Uh, let's talk about your latest project, though, which, as you say, sorry, Sam Rockwell and Robin Wright directed it. How? Uh, well, let's talk about first uh, Inception of Story. 
Uh, okay. Tell us, tell us uh, a little synopsis of. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. The Dark of Night. Thank you, Dark of Night. Yeah. I apologize. That's, that's okay. Um, you know what? Actually, it, it was uh, it, the whole thing has just been amazing. I, I, I absolutely believe that the two most horrifying words to any writer are "fade in." Because you know that you're going to be spending God knows how long if you're doing a pilot or a feature or whatever. Um, so there was a, an opportunity to do um, a little, uh, just a little writing contest. And actually one of uh, the instructors at NIFA, Denise Carlson, brought it to my attention. Um, it, was, uh, it was basically sort of like give you a character, a genre, and a setting. It's in three heats. You have uh, eight, uh, eight days to write 12 pages, and then wow. you have... I don't know, five days to write through. I don't know exactly what it was. But um, anyway, my, my, my assignment was an unemployed man or woman, uh, a diner in suspense. And so I immediately got the idea for the dark of night. Um, and I sat down to just make some notes about what I was going to do. And an hour and a half later, the script was finished. Wow. I gave it to my husband who actually, he's, he's like, he's like this kind of guy. Yeah. I like it. Like, how does that help me? <laughs> Yeah, I like it. That's like, you know, you also like the hamburger I made for dinner last night and you like to sit <laughs> in the hot tub. That doesn't help me out. So, but when I gave it to him, I was actually just cooking dinner and this is what I heard from the other room. Oh, wow. And I thought, all right, I've got him. So Excellent. I sent it to uh, a woman that I met who works on House of Cards. Her name is Nini Lee Huen. She actually is Robin Wright's assistant, but she also acts on the show and uh, does a, a lot of work with him. So she's been there from the beginning. And I sent it to her as a piece for her to act in. Um, she is an actress and was looking for things for a reel. And I just had it sitting there. I had won uh, a, a grand prize for it for Table Read My Screenplay through ISA. But she called and she said, every season the crew from House of Cards makes a short movie so that all the junior crew members can do the jobs they want to do, not the jobs that they're doing. Oh, that's so And it sweet. helps also pad everybody's resume. Not pad everybody's resume, but it helps with their resume, sure. building their resume. I'm sorry, that was the word I was looking for. So um, would I mind terribly if this junior crew from House of Cards made my short film? And I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then she called after the Emmy Awards last year in September. And she's like, so um, Robin read it and she'd like to direct it. Is that OK? And, and I have been a Robin Wright fan. I have told Robin this like I have gushed and fangirled on her. Um, honestly, ever since I first saw her, I think in the princess bride. Yes, and so now all of a sudden, you know, like this major person wants to direct and everybody hopped on board. The house of uh, cards production office gave us a, a camera truck. Wow. We ended up in the end having 125 crew members on what is basically a six minute film. I think our credits are longer than our movie. <laughs> and then Amy was sitting on a, on a plane next to Leslie Bibb who lives with Sam Rockwell. And so they started talking Got the script to uh, Leslie, Sam, uh, Michael Godare, who's been on The Affair, Kelly Thorne, who is on Rescue Me. Jeez. And then Nini also was in it as well. And so everybody just took this so seriously, which is so awesome. Leslie and Sam and Michael and Kelly all got together in their apartment and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed before they got there. Um, we actually used the set from Diner, the movie Diner, um, yeah. which was kind of cool to tell Kevin Bacon I'd been where he started. But um, it was absolutely amazing. It, it all came together, and it was so beautiful. We shot in black and white. Um, it's film noir style, 
and uh, it's currently in submission to film festivals. In fact, it uh, was recently accepted for the LA Shorts Fest in August, wow. so it's going to be showing there pretty soon too. So it's just it's just been amazing. That is incredible. Okay, so what I'm hearing from this is network, 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 <laughs> because it's <laughs> not who you That's know. Thing, but, you know, being in North Carolina has actually, you know, I. I think I, and I'm going to go back to that again. I know people say it's hard. It's not that I don't come to California. I was there just a couple of weeks ago. I came out for some meetings. The film actually had its world premiere at the Palm Springs Short Film Festival. But I think you really stick in somebody's mind when it's more about the, you know, like I said, not just meeting at a, at a bar or a cocktail party or at a restaurant or an event. You know, you take everybody's card and that's great. But it, it, this this has really been different because... When you meet somebody and they introduce you to somebody else, it's because there is more relationship. So it just sticks more. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Yeah. Uh, as you say, a business card is very impersonal. But when you have conversations about what you truly enjoy or what you're passionate or inspired about, like that connection is, is much stronger. I think Absolutely. there's much more of a desire to work together. Absolutely. Um, okay. So you've, you've got the script into everyone's hand. They agree to make the movie what are you involved in in pre-production are you on set yes that was the thing that kind of was crazy is that up until we we set a date to shoot and then uh the house of cards schedule got all screwed around so they we had to push it back i think about two weeks and then you know were we gonna lose our cast could they still do it well um i ended up doing rewrites which i think is kind of crazy on a on a basically a 10 page script i did rewrites every day up until the time that we wow. um went in cuz we had a very you know we basically had two days we basically had about 12 hours ish because everyone volunteered their time everybody wow. robin did the actors got paid the baltimore police got paid but everyone uh volunteered their time so we had to really be observant, in particular of union rules, because a lot of our Teamsters who were working a lot of the outdoor equipment had to have, I think it's eight hours before they started again. Mm -hmm. So we were on a time crunch. Everything had to be condensed and compressed, and we took stuff out, and we combined things. And, and I went to the set, and of course, having been around Hollywood for a very long time, my understanding was that they didn't want the writer. Like if you went, if you got to go, you stand in a corner and you be quiet. You know, mm. Adaptation style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what, what was sort of weird was there was sort of like, Denise, Denise, come over here. I want to ask you this or Sam Rockwell, like saying to me, Hey, I love the script. Do you mind if I change this line of dialogue? And I'm like, you can do whatever <laughs> you want. You're Sam Rockwell. Um, I think the thing that was so was actually kind of shocking to me was on Sunday afternoon, about midday, I really needed to go to the bathroom, and the only place to use was across the street. So I go across the street, and all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. There's a PA at the door saying, Robin has a question. You have to come now. Oh my goodness. They kind of stopped things for me so that I could get back over there. Now, here's what I heard about the set at House of Cards is the writers are really, really, really involved. They're on the set. They're there to ask questions or answer questions, rather. And so it was kind of routine for them to include writers. So I have to say that this experience is probably never going to be topped because I can't imagine the like even when my husband and I went on the set, every everyone, everybody came up and said, thank you so much for letting us do this. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of this. I'm <laughs> thinking this is my dream and I'm 10 times older than the rest of you. And thank you because this is awesome. So it was, it was a really great experience. And, and, 
And then when we found out that we got into the Cannes Film Festival, mm. we, we were put up at the host hotel at the Hotel Martinez. Mm. We had a red carpet premiere. The whole thing is just kind of crazy. I'm only really starting to wrap my head around it. Did you do more at Cannes? Uh, that is by far and away my favorite film festival that I've been to. Uh, so far, walking the playa or, or the giant casino boats. And it's it's uh, <laughs> such like it's very flashy and there are parties everywhere. And like it, it was uh, kind of extravagant. But then getting to see movies from literally all over the world um, that applied to French sensibility. So they're all very strange and um, highly stylized. Did you get a chance to <laughs> to see any other films while you were there? You know what? Honestly, I, I I didn't. I may have possibly been the worst networker in the history of the <laughs> Cannes Film Festival, but but I have a really good reason why. Um, I had originally organized an Airbnb before I went because mm -hmm. we weren't really sure. Kind of, this all came together really quickly. So I had organized an Airbnb. I got to Heathrow and found out we were staying at the Hotel Martinez. It wasn't until I got to the Hotel Martinez that I discovered that the Cannes Film Festival was paying for us to stay there. And it was a host hotel. So I had a front row seat to everything. Um, and then in the midday before all of the, the opening night uh, uh, festivities, I found out that we had all been invited to the 70th anniversary dinner for the Cannes Film Festival. So I kind of, you know, and I kind of grabbed the the tail of the of the comet um, and and went with it. So I I actually didn't meet a lot of people, mostly because of the way that it was all laid out. And and what was great about it is that, unlike a lot of people I have known in the film business, um, Robin is extremely extremely generous in sharing the stage with the people who made this particular film happen. And I would imagine probably in her life in general. So we went to, you know, I was, I was able to go to the interview that she had at the Majestic. Um, we had a, a cocktail party at the, at the um, Palais, um, kind of just the, the six or seven of us that were, you know, there and part of this whole thing. And then we went to dinner afterwards at a little restaurant on the beach. So I got to spend a lot of time with the people who really made this happen. And I think that meant more to me at the end of the day than shaking hands with a bunch of people at a party on a beach and, coming away from it thinking I didn't really, I didn't really see, I, I mean, I met Harvey Weinstein, which apparently everyone meets Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and then I also met, met uh, Hilda Quilly, which is cool. Cause I have a, a script that I had given her for Lupita and Yango, but I, I think it was just really sort of more the, the kind of experience the, cele the celebrities have because they do go, but after they're done, they leave and they're not, you know, they, I mean, they all know people and I didn't really meet very many, but it was still something I'll, I'd never, I don't think I could ever do this again in my life. I mean, I hope I have another chance to, but this is just unforgettable. It sounds incredible. Uh, something else that sounds incredible, uh, and you've kind of been gushing about Robin Wright, but I, I'm curious, what is she like as a director? Oh, she's awesome as a director. But, you know, I mean, my God, she's been around acting and around film sets forever. Mm -hmm. She was so, first of all, we did, you know, we shared, she and I actually shared some ideas back and forth about movies to watch kind of styles that we were going for. Should we do it in black and white? Should we do it in color? Um, about what kind of gun we should use. What kind of but movie was, did you guys agree she, on? Oh, wait, I'm sorry, say that again? Which kind of movies were you guys agreeing on? What, what wound up being we were, the... We watched uh, The Killers... Yes. Um, and Strangers on a Train, and then I know that she watched Citizen Kane. Uh, in fact, I know she watched Citizen Kane with the sound off of it just to sort of get 
the idea of the visuals. Because think mm-hmm. about, you know, in movies back then, you could, they did, and you probably still could, but they don't anymore. You could pack a ton of information into a frame. In The Killers, there's a frame um, where where um, Burt Lancaster's, the woman that is in love with Burt Lancaster is looking at him, and he's looking at Ava Gardner, and they're all in the same frame. And that's kind of what we wanted to go for. Like, it doesn't have to be done like uh, a movie where it's close-up, 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 or TV series. We wanted to sort of draw you in to the whole mood of the time and the and the characters and stuff. Yes. And she, she just came on the set. She knew what she wanted. She was confident. She took people's ideas in, um, but clearly had her own vision for it. And she was very kind to people. She didn't bark at anybody or yell at anybody. It was just sort of like, hey we're all doing this together and we love this. So let's all be a part of it. It was really incredible to watch. That sounds wonderful. And, and then... I know. <laughs> Cause I don't ever expect it to be like that again. <laughs> I've said to her more than once, please direct everything I ever write. Please, please, please. Cause I love this, but you know, I'm sure she has everything she's going to do someday. I mean, you never know. It sounds like we, that you're reaching out to a lot of people. You mentioned Lucian and Gala a little bit earlier. Um, what do you do coming off of a success like this? You know, it's a, it's a short you got picked up, featured at one of the largest film festivals in the world. You mentioned that you, you know, you had to come back to, you know, doing the day job, making sure that bills got paid, which is infinitely important. Um, do you instantly start writing your next picture? Had you already been working on something? Well, I I actually started working on um, a pilot where I'm I'm developing a pilot uh, for a series based on the short film. That was one of the things that happened when we were on the set was that um, everybody, you know, this was it was so it was a throwback, but it with definitely contemporary elements to it, and and everyone looked at each other like this would just make such a great series. So I did write a pilot episode. I'm currently in the middle of rewriting the pilot episode. It it. And that was what the point of the workshop last week was, excuse me, was to try to find how to reshape it to something that was really solid because it's a great idea. You know, you basically got this woman who is uh, has it has it out for Al Capone and people I know people are sure like, well, this is revisionist and it didn't happen exactly. We all know how his story actually ended up. But we just sort of felt like here's a great opportunity to take this character, this badass woman in a period in time when everybody thought of women wearing, you know, cloche hats and they had sunken cheeks because it was the Depression. Mm -hmm. And there were actually more women criminals in the 30s. Actually, there were more criminals, period, in the 30s than I think there have been any time since then. So I recently, I finished the pilot, but I'm going to rewrite that. I am working on a web series about my experiences being an award-winning screenwriter who still fixes RV toilets on the <laughs> side. Um, and uh, and then I'll have the screenplay that I wrote um, when I was at NYFA called Ride the Wind, the Bessie Stringfield story, which Yay. is about an African-American woman who became the first uh, woman uh, to ride the lower 48 by motorcycle in the 1930s and the first uh, African-American woman also to be inducted into the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. So, um, and then I have a couple of other projects I'm starting. I'm working with a writer that I actually met when I was at NIFA, Kevin uh, Milligan. He is uh, an amazing writer. We're working on a World War II piece together. And um, I'm just actually, I've just got too many ideas. It's kind of (laughs) crazy that I, I run across the most incredible material in the course of my research and I, I see, just seem to be stuck in telling period pieces, but I love that there's great, they're great stories. So I have a couple of things that I'm working on, but you know, in all honesty, I, I get asked a lot about 
you know, how I write and where I write. I write in an RV service van on the way to and from jobs. Um, I come back at night and I put it in the computer and then I work on the weekends. And that's kind of how I write. So I'm only able to do about two screenplays a year because of it. So I've got more ideas than I have time for, but um, I kind of consider that an embarrassment of riches. A lot of writers mm. have a great idea and then they don't know what to do next. And I'm like, I'm going to need to live to be 500 years old to get all these out. <laughs> it also sounds, uh, along with history, war seems to be a common theme or at least setting perhaps for a lot of your work. Is there some... You know, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was, I was agreeing with you. Yeah, there is. But I'd love to hear the rest of the question. I'm sorry. That's okay. No worries. I was just asking. I'm curious as to what about that setting kind of drives your pen or, or what do you find interesting about it? You know, there are so many untold stories from that period in time. Um, I ha actually optioned a book about a year ago about the uh, all-girl bands in World War II. Wow. I didn't realize in World War II that, you know, 99% of musicians – uh, including people like Glenn Miller, although Glenn Miller did go, he did go into the army, but then he went and played music at country clubs for generals. But, um, <laughs> you know, women, women played music everywhere. There were no bands in the United States. And there were a lot of women who sacrificed, uh, a lot to do something like that. Mm. Um, I, you know, there's an untold story. There's actually, a, and I'm not going to go into detail on this one, but I, I stumbled on a story about world war two that even my friends who are world war two historians, don't know anything about. Oh. So I just think it's a really rich period with respect to, you know, in all honesty, and not to get political about this, but the way the world is going now, to think that there was a time when people did fight for a cause and they did fight to support each other. My grandmother met my grandfather uh, on a blind date right before he went into the war, and he was only supposed to be gone for a year. He was gone for five. Um, and crazily enough, because he actually survived, he would get a new group of people and they would all die and then they'd get a new group of people and they would all die. So wow. they kind of kept him on because I guess because he lived. But um, anyway, when he came back from, from the war, they got married and moved to California. And my grandmother told me every Friday night in the apartment complex that they lived in, that everyone showed up no matter rain or shine, no matter what it was and brought the food that they had. So everyone in the apartment complex could eat. And now we've got people saying, you know, you deserve health care, but you don't. Mm. And you work seven jobs and you make minimum wage, but you don't deserve food stamps because you're still poor. So I just guess I love the, the, the ways in which we came together as a nation and we rose to our potential as people. And I find that to be really inspiring. I find the stories of women in particular in World War II, you know, we, we, women did everything. They, they were firefighters and loggers and policemen women built the alaska railroad because there weren't enough men to do it so and then after the war was over they just went back home again it was like it's okay you did your job now leave and i think that's sad too i think that there's a light that needs to be shed on that as well i absolutely I couldn't agree more it's one of the things that really um interested me in history as you say movies from the 30s and 40s heavily featured women in in main roles and they were so authentic and and for a long time uh the most authentic representation of women I could find from my daily, like actual life were in movies from the forties and it took yeah. me a long time to figure out that it, that was because when the men came back, women were expected to go back into their hole, which then of course leads to the second round of women's lives movement. Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm kind of, it's, fascinating listening to you talk about all of these stories, most of which I have never heard of. Um, and I, now I really want to see them on the big screen. 
But you know what's crazy is that I I think that I've only I mean I I remember I took a a, a sociology class when I was in um when when I was in college, mm-hmm. uh, it was a women's studies class and the woman who ran the class one of the classes that I took, um had actually had one of the first uh, successful cases that was argued against the uh, to the Supreme Court about sexual discrimination. She had a master's degree from Harvard University in economics. And she lost a job to a man, and I always say it was a correspondence course. I don't know where he graduated from, mm. but uh, sorry, it might as well have been. And 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 they and they turned her down because they said, "You're a young woman. You're going to have kids. You've got a husband to take care of you. You don't need this job." And she's like, "I went to college for a reason, and I can kind of do both." And so she took the case to the Supreme Court, and kind of ever since then, I've been I've really been interested in finding out about uh, what women what women do and what women are capable of. Like one of the things I ran across out of the blue on the, on the research for the dark of night for the TV pilot was looking into ways that, uh, that cops could investigate crime in the thirties because, mm-hmm. you know, really, unless you were standing over somebody with a bloody knife, there was no way to, to really to track you. Forensics and there was a woman, there was a woman named Frances Glessner Lee. Her father was one of uh, several people that established international harvester. They make the tractors. And he didn't let her, she, he had a fortune and he didn't let her go to college because he said she wouldn't need it when she got married anyway, which is close to my heart because my father said the same thing to me. Mm. Well, after he died, when she was in her 50s and she inherited all of his money, she started building, the, building these dioramas. They were called the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And um, she built these things in, in, in intricate detail. Like if there was a lock, there was a key to fit it. If there was li- if there were lights in the room, they actually worked. And this is in the 30s. And she actually became what is considered even to this day to be the mother of criminology because she taught cops how to investigate crimes differently than the way that they had come up thinking that you you should. Like if you're like if you have a prostitute in a room and she's you know entertaining gentlemen uh, callers. And there's only one glass of wine and she's dead in the bathtub and rigor mortis is set in. What happened there exactly? You know, to look outside the clues. Mm. And so I just, I find those stories to be fascinating because there's so many things that women have done. And if I, you know, yes, I have beat my head against the wall trying to get them in front of people. But, um, and I probably could have had an amazing career by now. I might not be sitting in North Carolina, although where I'm at is gorgeous and I'm not sorry to be here. But I might have had this amazing career if I'd have done what I was supposed to do, except that I feel like this is what I was supposed to do. And if it took this long to get here, and if it took this long for Hollywood to come to my way of thinking, and all of you young women are out there beating the band in front of me, then this was all meant to be. That is beautiful and really inspiring. If people want to follow you or or see your work, where can they go? I am on Facebook uh, at delicateflowerfilms.com. Uh, I think is my Facebook page. Maybe it's just Delicate Flower Films. And then I am on Twitter, uh, Denise Myers 59 I also have a blog about screenwriting. I try to do it once a week, but you know how that goes. <laughs> it's, called, it's called Screenwriting Ain't for Sissies hmm. uh, at WordPress.com. 
so I, I'm kind of trying to take people on my journey, but sometimes that journey involves fixing toilets, and I don't write about that very much anymore. <laughs> that is fair. You got a whole web series coming out about that. I do. I know. I actually think I said to my husband today, I'm like, it figures. After years and years and years of research about women in history, I'm going to sell a series about me fixing toilets and writing screenplays. There you go. <laughs> right. Which, you know, uh, Denise, thank you so much for, for being here and sharing all of these stories with us and, and telling about your experience it's been incredible incredible to hear um guys follow denise hear her story uh watch her movies if you're in la go to the la short film festival um so you can check out her work uh until next week i have been joel smith pega will be back next week and we're gonna have our dear friend peter rayner back in the studio to talk about a very special anniversary so we'll see you guys next thursday thanks From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Christian Harloff, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principal.